Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. Queer in the Air would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, true owners, custodians and caretakers of this land on which this program is created and produced. We pay respect to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Like most communities, 3CR staff, programmers and volunteers are working remotely and producing their shows from home for the time being due to COVID-19. So some things will sound different as some programmers will present or produce their shows on the phone, via online platforms or other creative methods. But we are still here, giving you up-to-date, radical, alternative and critically engaged content 24-7 during this time. You're listening to Queer in the Air, critically engaged queer commentary with an interest on the intersection of queerness with other experiences of marginalisation. The show is presented by peers on the LGBTIQA spectrum. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter via the handle Queer in the Air. And listen to our podcast via 3cr.org.au forward slash Queer in the Air. Today's episode of Queer in the Air was produced and recorded in a substitute workspace in my home in Nam, Melbourne. I'd like to acknowledge that today's episode is broadcast on the International Day Against Homophobia, Biphobia, Intersex Phobia and Transphobia, a day that raises awareness of LGBTIQA rights violations and to stimulate interest in queer rights work worldwide. My name is MV. Please be aware that today's show contains discussions and descriptions of forced displacement, isolation and discrimination towards refugees and asylum seekers. If this type of content is a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or lifeline.org.au, Switchboard Victoria on 1800 184 527 or switchboard.org.au, Queerspace on 03-9663-6733 or queerspace.org.au or contact your state-based service. I'll place these resources on Queer in the Air's webpage show notes later today. On today's program, You'll hear a conversation I conducted with Tina and Renee Dixon, who have been together for a decade now, not only as a couple, but partners in everything they do. They both have a lived experience as queer refugee women. Currently, they are both PhD candidates at the Australian National University and are advocates for the rights and inclusion of LGBTIQA people from refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds. We discuss their continued activism and advocacy for LGBTIQA refugee and asylum seekers. Renee's work on a digital archive of LGBTIQA forced migration, last year's inaugural queer displacements conference and the creation of the Canberra Statement, their current and upcoming projects supporting queer refugee and asylum seekers, with overarching conversations on queer refugee rights and validation of their experiences. Here is the first part of our conversation. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital and streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. My name is Tina Dixon. I'm a PhD candidate at the Australian National University. I work in um, family violence policy and also with Renee, I'm involved in LGBTIQ refugee activism. Hello, my name is Renee Dixon. I'm a PhD candidate at the Australian National University and in my work I'm creating the first in the world digital archive about LGBTIQ forced displacement. At my day job I'm creating 3D models of the animal bones and uh, currently I'm at this moment I'm scanning Tasmanian tiger. In my free time I'm working with Tina Queer displacements in the broad sense of this sense. 
So Tina, I know you've been collating a lot of information with your queer feminism and your PhD research, but Renee, in your PhD research, you are creating a world first digital archive of LGBTIQA plus oral histories about forced migration. So for you, what is the importance of having these stories explored and presented in a digital format? I would probably begin from, um, from the question, how we keeping our memory in the society? Because the archives, they're created by people who is in power positions. They're created by the institutions. And the institution practices, they're written almost exclusively by the white men who work for the government. Often cultural memory is reproducing these heteronormative norms and erasing LGBTIQ histories. When we're talking about LGBTIQ community archives, unfortunately, um, this continuation of privilege continues in, in those archives because they privileging stories of middle class or upper class gay men it's usually white figure in archives and um, we again don't have the visibility of people of color, non-binary folks. All of this uh, visibility of the queer life is organized around bars, activism, social events and uh, people who is like don't have enough um, money to participate in this events or feel uncomfortable to go to these events they again they're not um, captured in this cultural memory it happens that phenomenon of lgbtq forced migration are not sufficiently documented um, and in my archive i want to collect these stories and give people power to tell what they think they want to address for example giving an interview this interview will be shaped around some topic or interest of the program or journalist view on that point of view. Or if we're going to talk to a lawyer, it will be again shaped in a different language. Uh, in my archive, I won't give people to talk about what they want to. And my guiding principle in uh, creation of this archive is safety of the people who will contribute, uh, because not everyone can freely talk about their experiences. So um, we have different options about how to minimize uh, any risks to their safety. If people want to contact and preserve their stories, they, they're important, please contact me so we can organize the interview. and save our story and history because it's your story and you have absolutely full rights on your story and how you will tell it and it's so important to be able to provide that to provide that space and that platform for people to tell their stories in a really comfortable and safe environment and thus far what has been the response from people that have been involved in your project so uh, my project is in these several stages, I'm not just collecting oral histories, I'm creating absolutely new environment to present these stories. So often when you're going to the archives or libraries, you will be welcomed with a search box. So you need to have certain understanding what you wanna get from this archive. Uh, it's quite elitist approach. Um, or sometimes to get information from the, from the archive, you need to be physically there to require access to these stories. My idea is to have it open. It's to give everything what is in archive in a very generous interface that you would see how many stories of lesbian, how many stories of, for example, intersex people or transgender people. You can play around, you can choose from which countries they can um, like arrive where they find safety. So it's it will be like a very engaging interface where people can spend their time and learn more. And in my work, I'm, I'm trying not to limit myself only to Australia. So last year I've been in Germany and I contacted several NGOs. Um, some of them get in touch with me and um, I was able to record two interviews in Germany. Um, in Australia, um, I was able to start recording interviews as well with people, but it's a bit slowed down because of the current situation. And um, 
trying to be very cautious and I don't want to push people and say, hey, tell me a story. So I want that people understand and the people will be ready to come and start talking about this because these experiences, especially refugees experiences, it's not an easy topic to talk about. So it's something new which I'm creating and um, I'm having very long conversations with people that they understand what they want to say and they understand what they want to preserve in this archive. I just wondered how long has the project been going for the duration thus far and for how long will it be an ongoing project? Will there be an end date? It's a PhD research, uh, so I started last year, and um, you need to organize the knowledge around frameworks, theories, methodologies. So I did it the first year I did this. Now I'm at the stage of the creation and uh, active fieldwork. So my PhD research will be finished um, in 2022, but I'm creating this archive with an idea that it will be continuous project, living project on the internet. I hope so too. I think it's an incredible idea for a project. And you're right, usually queer visual and audio archives are engulfed with white queerness. So the idea of capturing those narratives from people from non-white backgrounds is an incredible project. And Wish you the best of luck with that and look forward to its development. But let's backtrack somewhat. Last year in November, the inaugural Queer Displacements Conference took place. Now, to contextualize this for our listeners, what was the conference about? Um, Queer Displacements, Sexuality, Immigration and Exile Conference uh, was designed to exclusively discuss the topic of LGBTIQ plus asylum. The reason we did that was because still within refugee spaces or LGBTQ spaces, it's really rare that we discuss those intersectional experiences. When we do, it's normally sort of one session on some particular aspect of it. And um, very often it's one of the parallel concurrent sessions. So not everyone um, goes and listens to that. So we wanted to create a space where we could discuss the issue holistically, because very often when you think of LGBTIQ asylum, um, the most common discussions are around detention or um, access to asylum processes. And we don't talk about things like health, for example. We don't talk about things like art or any other issues that are arising um, in people's lives. What we did also, we wanted to make sure that the conference was an accessible space, but also that the conference was centering the lived experiences. So we uh, were able to provide scholarships to 27 LGBTIQ people from refugee backgrounds to not only just attend the conference, but be at that center in terms of the programming of the conference, for example. Overall, the conference lasted for two and a half days. Um, So we had a free panel before um, the conference and then two days of the conference. We had 150 people attending from about 14 countries. We've got 50 of them presenting. Overall, we discussed nine um, sort of overarching topics of LGBTQ asylum, and then um, people who won scholarships, people from refugee backgrounds who are LGBTQ, they had their plenary sessions, which I think was really important that, you know, while people could choose whether they would go to session on law or health, you know, uh, when it was about lived experience, people, everyone was there. And that was framed not just around storytelling of what is expected for you to tell, but rather those sessions with people um, from refugee backgrounds were almost like a truth-telling sessions where people could not just reflect sort of, you know, I'm here in Australia because this happened to me, but they could reflect what support was in Australia available, what gaps were still available. And so if people go to the website to have a look at the final conference report, um, we have produced a interesting resource put in the report which talks about the challenges and issues that LGBTIQ people seeking asylum and refugees still experiencing in Australia and I think that's going to be useful for many service providers to see those gaps in both support and policy work um, to make sure that people can finally obtain safety here. 
And what was the demographic of people that attended? You did mention that people from 14 countries had attended. And I also know that there was a crowdfunding campaign to fund LGBTIQ refugees to attend. What was the personal responses and stories from people that had attended? They were given opportunities to speak of their stories and to be involved in the policy collaborative process there. What was the more sort of personal anecdotes that you had received from the participants and from the attendees to the conference? To your first part of the question, uh, people who were there at the conference, majority of the people that was an academics who work uh, with LGBTQ refugee uh, issues, um, it was a lot of people from the um, support services like uh, resettlement organizations or NGOs who help refugees in general. Um, it was some students who is doing their masters or research on that issues. And we're really glad that government were there um, because I think we really need to work together to make our lives better. To your other questions, um, it was very important for um, LGBTQ refugees because some of them, they were able to first time in their lives meet someone from the same background. So we had 27 people who came and um, mostly um, New South Wales, Victoria, but also Queensland. And I think it was important because after that, people were able to, to sort of forge those connections, foster those connections with their people in their states. We've seen that people um, sort of going and presenting at conferences together or just hanging out together, but it kind of created that sense that they were not alone. Because we were able to sponsor people, we were widely advertising that the scholarships were available. We were actually able to reach to a lot of people who were not clients of any organizations, who we didn't know, but who were able to, and he, some of them were only in Australia for like a couple of months and some were in Australia for much longer, but they were able to see that some support, some understanding was, was there, available to them. And I think that was the major outcome that they all came together. And I feel like it was the, for the first time that they feel that they're seen and they're not researched to the death and they can contribute and they know that their knowledge is valuable and they feel that they don't need to represent their vulnerability in order to why the public understand that their lives matter. That's usually the trajectory, isn't it? People that give out their stories in these in these spaces, in these media landscapes, their stories are often used as media fodder, as a means of sensationalism, I suppose, and to usually put forward or to advance someone else's career or ideas or stories, you know, these stories that are usually told. On the conference still, one of the immediate conference outcomes was the creation of the Canberra Statement, a really important document that detailed the state of rights of LGBTIQA plus people seeking asylum, and it called for immediate action. So far, there's been 350 stakeholders who have signed the statement. However, there is more work to do to improve the policy and its practice and actually put it into practice. So what is at the crux of this statement and what underpins its core priorities? The, it was great for the conference to come together and to discuss the progress that was done, also to discuss the, you know, a number of issues that still had to be addressed. But we felt that we wanted to have something tangible that on the one hand could guide people in implementing the necessary changes in a very um, consistent way, but on the other hand also that it could hold them accountable for the work that they do. And so Canberra Statement is envisioned to be this um, policy guide, but also a call for global solidarity with the LGBTIQ people from various experiences of forced displacement. So it's drafted in, um, it consists of two parts. So the first part states the issues that LGBTIQ people from FG backgrounds are experiencing around the world. And it covers a lot of stuff like 
violence that happens and people needing to flee and the responses that are very often really unsatisfactory when you know from the government when they seek asylum um it also really reinforces an important message that lgbtq people existed in all cultures and throughout the history that this is not something new this is not something western this is a part of every society and um, they need to be really supported and then the second part of this statement goes in term very high level recommendations in terms of access to documents or access to appropriate health care or legal assistance when they seek asylum housing um, funding to lgbtq refugee-led initiatives and and stuff like that and so when we ask people um, whether individuals or organizations to sign on to it we're asking two things. So one is show their commitment, right? So they put their name, the name going to appear publicly if they um, chose to um, on a register that they've signed and they affirmed the rights. So essentially they say that we believe in the human rights of LGBTQ people who've been forcibly displaced. But the second part we're asking is to implement what they sign up. And we understand that not everything is applicable for every organization. For example, we have family planning um, organizations signing up and we understand that only parts about sexual reproductive health or gender affirming healthcare or HIV STIs will be applicable to them. And that's fine. So they need to implement the part that is relevant to their work. But I think what sometimes we also see that some people sign up to it and then they do not change any practices. So, for example, they do not collect the data on LGBTIQ when they collect data on, for example, your country of origin for something like a conference. So what we're hoping that this statement makes people think that everybody has a role to play when it comes to human rights for all refugees, because we cannot be talking about people who've experienced forced displacement as if they're all identical group. There is a great intersectionality within, in terms of gender, sexuality, age, disability, um, indigenous status, racial, cultural diversity, and so on. And so this statement specifically talks about sexual orientation, gender identity, intersex status, and it tells you what are the gaps and how you can implement them. And so to, I guess, assist people with that, uh, later in the year, we're hoping to run a webinar that explains a little bit more in terms of implementation of the statement and what people can do to, to really be that, to be the very ethical ally. So every single person and organization who signs on to Canberra's statement can um, play their own role in implementing it. So for example, on um, your example of the 3CR radio station, um, I feel that there has been a continuous engagement with the issue of LGBTQ refugees in um, different programs of this radio station and specifically with UMV, we've done you know, a separate interview. There was an interview with Azan and Paula and we continue going on now as well. And this for me shows that you know, we, we're not doing this work for sort of a tick approach that we've done one interview and this is enough, but rather there is a continuous and meaningful engagement with the issue. And for us, this is one of the um, good practice examples of what it actually means to implement Canberra Statement and what it means to be a part of that ongoing affirmation of the human rights of LGBTIQ plus people. So we are very thankful for that. And we hope that, you know, this very um, hands-on examples can show to other organizations that it is really possible to make sure that you are inclusive of this group in your work. In your opinion, however, what do you think are the obstacles for organizations in implementing these changes that they have signed on to? Sometimes it is, of course, funding and resources. I think all of the community services sector are under-resourced. Um, they do serve way more clients in a way that they're funded to do so. So we, of course, understand that. But not every change requires funding. And sometimes it comes to simply the will of everyone in the organization from you know the top management to all of the other employees so i think sometimes people are comfortable in doing things um, in some usual ways without recognizing that actually one size doesn't fit all and we have to have um, those very um I guess well thought through, but also um, different approach, different approaches to different people. Because 
you know, if we have a, let's say, trans person going to use the refugee health service, their needs can be completely different in terms of health from a cisgender refugee. And if we're not able to recognize that and to meet that, then we're not meeting any of their needs because we just can't treat them that this is what, what they need. So I think we do appreciate the challenges that people are experiencing, but a lot of the change still comes from the will. And we really want people to even do as basic as acknowledge the diversity within refugee populations when we talk about experiences for example during refugee week you know it's so rare where any mainstream organization whether refugee or lgbtq or anyone else will actually go into that detail being like yes people flee war but they can also be queer and they can also be queer people who flee the persecution simply for the fact that they're queer i think we're not there yet and i think um signing to the statement um means committing to be um, more mindful and more nuanced in a way how we talk about forced displacement. You've just listened to the first part of my conversation with Tina and Renee, where we discuss Renee's PhD research in digital archiving of LGBTIQA forced migration and the important outcomes of the Canberra Statement that was created at the inaugural Queer Displacements Conference last year. Stay tuned for the second part of our conversation where we continue this discussion and speak about their current and upcoming projects. We'll be back after a few announcements and the track School Revolution by Voice of Bachiprot, a three-piece all-girl metal trash band from Indonesia. Get their music at ReverbNation.com. You're listening to Queer in the Air on 3CR Community Radio, 855am digital and streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming.
berani tubuh juga Bisa sesuai selepas harus lepas ke besip Punya semangat dan pikiran yang positif Just keep us to judge listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned to hear the rest of your 3CR podcast. Many of you will be familiar with 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser. It's when you, our listeners, literally keep the station going with your generous donations. It's a vibrant and busy time each June at the station and an all-in effort from our volunteers, staff and supporters. But in 2020, under the COVID-19 restrictions, we need to do things a little bit differently. So stay tuned for our June Station Appeal. It'll be online, on point, and be asking those of you who can to make a donation to keep 3CR alive. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. An important message from the Victorian Government about coronavirus. To manage coronavirus and save lives, immediate action is required. This means if you can stay home, you must stay home. Yes, it's a major disruption to your lives, but this disruption today will save the lives of many Victorians tomorrow. If you think you may have coronavirus, call the government's hotline on 1800 675 398 or visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Victorian Government. Managing this together. A 3CR supporter. If you just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am, digital, and live streaming via 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. My name is MV. During the break, you just heard a track by Indonesian three-piece all-girl metal trash band called Voice of Bachiprot, and their track, School Revolution. Get their music at ReverbNation.com. In the second part of my conversation with Tina and Renee Dixon, we speak about peer-run support and advocacy, responses to COVID-19, intersectional analysis, and their current and upcoming projects. The Queer Sisterhood Project, a peer-run support and advocacy group, was established in 2018 to provide a space where queer women from refugee and asylum-seeker backgrounds can feel a sense of belonging. A video entitled Being Queer and Refugee promotes the project and it was premiered at the Queer Displacements Conference in November last year. It's incredible. And the voices of the people speaking their truth is so visceral and moving. And I just want to state some of the comments that that really sort of resonated with me and really highlights some of the difficulties, but also the wonderful experiences of the, the queer people that were in the video. These are some of the statements. Isolation within their own cultural communities, Push to come out and perform queerness. Difficulty to hold their partner's hand in public. However, there's an opportunity to live free and a freedom to come out. Safety, that there's people like us. Ability to share stories and that you are not alone. And if you and others made it, I can make it too. I think I almost shed a tear as well during that video. It was very well done. So... Please discuss the production of the video and the opportunity you had to speak with the queer people whose voices are heard on this video. For us, it was very important to 
to co-create this video with the girls uh, and women. And we initially we wrote the text how we want to tell our stories. And after we collapse all of these texts and create from our eight stories coherent narrative, as you see in one phrase, another phrase, it was from the different stories, but they continue the one story. Um, and we decided to record our voices after we created the final document. Um, we chose to go down the path of uh, digital animation for several reasons. First of all, some women are still sick in asylum, and so it's um, you cannot show your face publicly. But also kind of thinking long term, um, we didn't want for people to have their face associated with the fact that they have sought asylum in Australia for the rest of their lives, because some people may choose at some point not to discuss those experiences. A lot of people assume that refugee is a part of your identity, but for the girls who is in our queer sisterhood group, we understand that it's not our identity. Refugee status is just an experience. Yeah, so the, the cartoon was the collaborative work, this example of the core design on every stage of the process, you know, from text, as Renee said, and up to, you know, choosing the theme and how it's going to be drawn. It was launched at the Queer Displacement Conference and most of the women who took part were in the audience. So I think it was um, a special moment to be able, you know, to see that final work in a way on a big screen um, at the conference and to see the reception of it. And we're very grateful to the grant from the channel, formerly Karen Giveout, um, funder that made this, this cartoon possible. And at the same time, we had so much material um, while we wrote it, um, our stories. So we split it and published the brochure for service providers with more information in depth, how they can help queer refugees can make their services more inclusive. And the brochure was published with the financial assistance from Link Incorporated. It's such a powerful experience. The video is so powerful. I think I watched it three times to get the full impact of it. And towards the end, it was just became this real powerful narrative. And I think the, the way it was sequenced was obviously cleverly done, initially speaking about people's sort of more difficult obstacles that they had to overcome, but towards the end, then saying, I'm not alone, I have safety, I have freedom, I'm able to participate in a group where I feel comfortable. I mean, that's what is implied, and I suppose that's what really spoke to me. It's really powerful. And if people want to get access to this video, where can they get information People can find us on Facebook or Instagram using the hashtag Queer Sisterhood. So we have links there to video um, and also to the brochure that is available for download and printing if services would like to. So Queer Sisterhood has now been running for two years and last year was the inaugural Queer Displacements Conference. So what's in store for this year and what are your plans? So after several years of us doing this support work and advocacy work, we've come to realize two things, sort of two of our lessons. One was that unless you are institutionalized, in a sense like you are, you are a registered organization with, you know, ABN and things like that, it is really easy to erase you, to silence you, to forget to include you into important emails or to consult with you when you who are non-specialist organization in the issues of LGBTQ asylum are producing some policy documents on this area. And the second one that while we do see a, a growing amount of different organizations and individuals who want to be allies to LGBTQ refugees trying to do some work, very often that work is done in isolation and not um, by engaging um, the LGBTQ refugee community as equal partners in those work. This wasn't an easy decision, but we've come to realization that for our support and advocacy to be effective, um, we need to register an organization. And so on the 27th of April, we've registered the non-for-profit called Forcibly Displaced People Network. 
which is um, going to be the LGBTIQ refugee-led organization to provide support for LGBTIQ people in forced displacement, um, as well as to contribute to advocacy efforts and human rights work on the issues of LGBTIQ asylum. The uniqueness of Forcibly Displaced People Network, or FDPN, lies in the fact that we do start from the premises of the lived experience. Um, three people out of four on the board come with the lived experience of LGBTIQ forced displacement. We're also going to be very soon recruiting an advisory group to the organization that will also be comprising of LGBTIQ plus people who experience forced displacement. We're planning on providing some support like we did, for example, during, um, and I still doing during the COVID pandemic, but also engaging in advocacy efforts as well as different training and, and production of, of research materials. Um, when we are still as LGBTIQ people back in our countries of origin, it is really often that we hear that this is still not the right time for LGBTIQ equality to be achieved. So, for example, people say, well, let's have women's rights first or let's have those rights first and then maybe in some time we'll be ready to sort of do your rights. And very often that lack of attention actually involves a lot of violence and so people can't wait anymore because literally your life is, is on the line and so people flee. But I still see the same kind of tendencies happening in Australia because when we talk about any issues that people have been forcibly displaced experience, um, we kind of don't go down the track of explaining so what are the specific issues for LGBTIQ people or where they're more at risk of violence even when they are in this kind of a safe um, space and what about if LGBTIQ person also has a disability you know we, we kind of don't go down that uh, very nuanced conversation so we see our um, unique role in actually unpacking that intersectionality and discussing how one's gender identity, sexual orientation, intersex status actually creates for them different barriers um, to access services or support or to actually, you know, finally enjoy the human rights in Australia. I know it's only just in the early days of its inception, but I look forward to hearing more about this. It sounds incredible. I love the way that it's inclusive and diverse so let's talk about some of the activities you've been already running through the Forcibly Displaced People's Network. And especially, I'm interested in the work done in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. So in this time of global spatial and mobility restrictions placed upon all of us as a response to COVID-19, there are impacts on all people in so-called Australia. However, what are the more specific impacts that affect LGBTIQA plus people seeking asylum? Um, in relation to COVID, since the, since the pandemic was starting, I think what we've seen that any existing sort of pre-existing inequality and discrimination was actually really heightened during the pandemic. And it was happening in multiple ways. So, for example, if you think of a day-to-day life where LGBTQ people seeking asylum may have barriers to accessing services because either there is some sort of discrimination happening or because when you come from the backgrounds where you've been constantly discriminated and and judged and it's really difficult for people to to build those trust relationships with with places that are sort of authority like you know organizations or police or stuff like that so during the pandemic that situation really heightens we saw a lot of people obviously as you know regardless of who you are losing the jobs for lgbtq people seeking asylum um the differences were in the fact that as any other asylum seekers they are on bridging visas and um, it is really difficult to find employment on a bridging visa because it gets to be seen as this very temporary um, visa that can sort of you know, run out at any point in time. Of course, there are also challenges, you know, um, whether you're a trans person and with your documents and, you know, some employers who are really uninformed and do not want to employ people. And then there was a general reduction sort of, of employment opportunities. Um, a lot of LGBTIQ people seeking asylum are not eligible for Medicare. Um, and so in situations before when they, um, you know, 
were able to work and had any specific medical needs, for example, as trans people and access to hormones, they were able to cover that. Now there was no jobs anymore. Um, people seeking asylum are not eligible for any government income support. And so for many that meant that they cannot meet their health needs um, at all. So what we were doing is we were sort of trying to do two things. Um, one is contribute to advocacy efforts. We were also sending the letters explaining this very distinct risks and vulnerabilities for LGBTIQ people um, and we send those letters to relevant ministers in the social services space and home affairs department and we were also contributing to the nationwide campaign run by the Refugee Council of Australia and many others trying to make sure that people on the range of temporary visas were given access to any sort of income support and Medicare to be able to support them um, during this very precarious time. And simultaneously with that, we ran a crowdfund campaign to be able to provide some financial assistance to people. Because we were hearing these experiences, like one of the, um, the, the persons who we met at the Queer Displacements Conference, he had a work injury, and so it took him a time out of work to heal and then COVID pandemic happened and his shift was one of the first ones to be completely cut. And so he had no money literally to be able to pay rent. We have people who live in regional areas like regional New South Wales and Victoria where access to NGOs in general is really limited. So anything happens in terms of your employment, you have no one to go and get you know, food or some existence to cover your rent. We've had people here in ICT who had no phone credit to be able to call an NGO and ask for some you know, food from the food bank and also had no money to even um, for a bus ticket to go directly to that NGO and to get something for them to eat. And then, you know, as the social isolation restrictions were tightening, for example, all of the public spaces like public libraries get to be closed so people can't even go and use the Wi-Fi um, for free to be able um, to stay in touch. So, um, and then there was a number of trans people who, who required continuous access, of course, to the medication that they use, a woman who is pregnant and is due to give birth next month. So there's a lot of different cases and most of these people they're either not clients of any organizations at the moment who can support them, but even sometimes when they are, organizations themselves do not have any funding for the income support. And so um, they often, um, you know, whether prejudices or anything else, people just miss out. And with the crowdfund at the moment, we were able during last month to support I think about 14 people with um, expenses like rent, groceries, phone credit, and medical. And so we're still running the crowdfund, hoping to be able to do another round, sort of for another month um, later in the mid-May. But also, um, you know, we're occasionally getting queries in between from other people who find out and who require some sort of assistance to literally be able to survive at this moment. You mentioned one of your previous answers in relation to the intersections that occur within LGBTIQA plus uh, spaces, and especially in relation to um, access to healthcare, access to services, and now access to NGO services. So let's just unpack that a bit more and discuss this concept of intersectional analysis, especially in the terms of accessibility and also as an issue in relation to classism and gender identity. And there's many more intersections, but how does that apply in this particular case? I think a lot of people understand intersectionality in a very simplistic way, thinking that it is only about intersection of your identity. So, for example, you know, you've got gender, you've got age, sexuality, whatever. For me, intersectionality highlights those different identities and experiences that we have and then how those ones show me the power that exists in the world. People do not understand that intersectionality is on one hand about this, but on another hand, this intersection of different identities and experiences actually highlights to us in what circumstances we have privilege and in what circumstances we're actually deprived of that privilege and, and uh, we are discriminated or you know, the barriers to different services and support is exacerbated even more. 
because of that intersection, because it highlights that power from people to be able to decide what you need, to be able to decide on your access to spaces. Um, the other thing which is about that idea of class, and I think the whole question of um, elitism, the more, I guess, we develop the understanding of intersectionality, the more it highlights for me that neither in service provision nor in policy, we can no longer imagine that there is a very generic, a mainstream figure of that client, whoever that is who, who we're writing policy for or doing the services. Um, we can't anymore be guided by this one-size-fits-all approach because actually it doesn't. And I think, you know, in even in the context of LGBTIQ asylum, in some cases, you know, you've got the privilege and in other cases you're still discriminated against. And I think it's up to services to be actually really responsive and making sure that they adopt that client-centered approach to working with you, that they recognize your needs, that even... In, in your impossibility sometimes to tell to them that you are queer, right? So they need to be able to provide you with a service or with the list of all available services that when you look, be like, okay, you know, I'm queer. I didn't tell you, but I see this service. So this was applicable to me. I'm going to choose it because what happens at the moment sometimes feels like unless you disclose who you are, they will be also guided by some kind of unconscious bias. And they're going to tell you, okay, we think you have to do this. And I think that comes back to that stuff that it's not, not going to just work for everyone. What people understand is sectionality in some ways. Trying to impose the way how they want to support us on us and they want us to be grateful and all this stuff. So what people like shaping our intersectionalities and experiences and how they will provide the support services. With Aslan, we discussed during the panel uh, at the Queer Displacement Conference, and he said that sometimes he was treated as a, um, as a refugee while he actually was a service provider in the position of the service provider. And at the same time, because I'm white passing, I had another opposite experience. I was as a, a person who came to get service from refugee organization, and I was treated as a white person who is like working and who came to the training to help these refugees, you know, like all in quotation marks. So, um, and I think the, the biases in refugee spaces, who can be a refugee, what type of color, how you can come to Australia, by which reasons they are very, very strong in these spaces. Really good answer. And how can people or how should people get into contact with you both? And also, are there any calls for actions happening in the near future that listeners should be aware of? I think at the moment, in light of the COVID pandemic, there are two important things to do. One, um, if you check out Refugee Council of Australia campaign called Nobody Left Behind, it draws the attention for the need for people seeking asylum to be able to access income support and Medicare. So they've got a template of letters um, to MP on their website. So we ask you to um, send a letter to your local member um, about the access to income support for people seeking asylum but also to write a few lines about specific risks and barriers that LGBTIQ people seek and experience during this time to make sure that, you know, we are very um, nuanced and intersectional in that conversation. If you are able to support our crowdfund so we can provide that vital financial assistance to people, it'll be really appreciated. You know, every single dollar that we raise goes towards um, people supporting their survival um, at this time. If people want to get in touch with us, whether that's for media inquiries or collaboration or LGBTIQ people seeking asylum or refugees currently in Australia, you can send us an email to queersisterhood at gmail.com. We're also with Renee on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. So if you Google our names or Queer Sisterhood Project, you'll be able to find us. And that was my conversation with Tina and Renee Dixon, PhD candidates and activists for LGBTIQA plus refugee and asylum seeker rights, both with a lived experience as queer refugee women, speaking about their advocacy and research work and their current and upcoming projects supporting queer refugee and asylum seekers. You can learn more about their work advocacy and projects via the following. 
follow Tina via the Twitter handle TN Dixon, Renee via the Twitter handle Renee underscore Dixon and via reneedixon.com.au or contact Tina and Renee via queersisterhood at gmail.com. For information on the Queer Sisterhood Project, search for Queer Sisterhood via Facebook and Instagram. Information on the Canberra Statement can be found at tinadixon.com.au forward slash Canberra hyphen statement. The Queer Displacements Conference Report is out now. You can view and search for it via tinadixon.com.au under the title Queer Displacements. The Refugee Council of Australia has information on ensuring people seeking asylum and refugees are included in COVID-19 strategies so that nobody is left behind. View this information via refugeecouncil.org.au forward slash priorities hyphen COVID hyphen 19. The brochure Being Queer and Refugee contains 30 tips for service providers for inclusive service provision. To download the brochure, head to tinadixon.com.au forward slash queer hyphen sisterhood hyphen project. To donate to the crowdfunding campaign, to help LGBTIQA plus asylum seekers survive COVID-19, go to chuff.org forward slash project forward slash queer hyphen refugees hyphen and hyphen COVID. And for information on the Forcibly Displaced People Network, the first organisation in Australia to dedicate its work to the issues of LGBTIQA plus forced displacement, head to facebook.com forward slash fdpn dot LGBTIQ. I'll place these resources on Queer in the Air's webpage show notes later today. Thank you to Tina and Renee Dixon for taking the time to speak with me about their work and advocacy for LGBTIQA plus refugee and asylum seeker rights. Queer in the Air wishes them ongoing support and solidarity in their continued activism. If the content in today's show has been a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au, Switchboard Victoria on 1800-184-527 or switchboard.org.au, Queerspace on 03-9663-6733 or queerspace.org.au or contact your state-based service. If you have questions, comments or complaints about today's program, contact us via queryintheair at gmail.com. Listen to our collection of podcasts, and today's program on demand for a week after initial broadcast via 3cr.org.au forward slash in the air. Up next is Black Femme Hip Hop Music Show, Hip Sister Hop. Thanks for listening. And until next time, stay safe and stay queer. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organized volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on queeraidmelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's queeraidmelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.